Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, Season 3 premiere. We are so happy to be back with you. Really, really, really happy to be back with you. We have so many amazing episodes in store, so many incredible interviews, special people who share our vision and our desire to discuss Jewish culture, Jewish nuance, Jewish history in a healthy environment, I guess you can say. Thank you for hanging in and still listening to our show. We really appreciate it. On today's Season 3 premiere, we are speaking with Rabbi Mendel Rubin, who along with his wife, wife, Razi, co-direct the Shabbos House Ror Chabad Jewish Center in New York, and he also teaches at the local Maimonides School. We hosted Rabbi Rubin thanks to some of our friends at Chabad.org, who we reached out to in honor of this year being the 120th birthday of the Lubavitcher River, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson on Yud Aleph Nisan, which this year lands on the night of April 11th and April 12th. It's Yud Aleph Nisan, which would have been the 120th birthday of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So as many of you probably know, 120 is a very special year. It was the amount of years that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, lived to. Whenever it's somebody's birthday, we often say, until 120, add 120. So there's a very special significance to the number. And for that reason, we wanted to have a special episode to discuss the Rebbe's teachings, which we have touched on in conversations with Rabbi Manus Friedman on this show and with Rabbi Shlomo Litvin. So we wanted to have another conversation. This time we focused a little bit more on the level of impact that the recording of the Rebbe's teachings had on Judaism today and at the time while he was still alive. Specifically, we spoke about Reb Yol, who passed away last year, Zechon Lebracha. Reb Yol was in charge of really leading that way of recording and memorizing a lot of the work that the Rebbe did, and particularly on Shabbat, because as some of you might know, on Shabbat we don't write, we don't record. So whenever the Rebbe spoke on Shabbat, it had to actually be memorized by a lot of the Hasidim, a lot of his students. So Reb Yol led that, and almost everything that the Rebbe spoke about in his Sichot, in his Ma'amoraim, in his different teachings and speeches and classes, it's almost all recorded, and it's incredible. And so so we wanted to sort of emphasize that point amongst many other topics. As usual with our guests, it's a nice casual conversation. We really loved having Rabbi Ruben on the show. You can find him on Twitter at Shabbos House. He's very active there. You can also find him on LinkedIn. And yeah, you can engage and you can you can reach out, let him know what you thought about the episode and let us know what you thought about the episode. As always, we really appreciate when you leave us a review, when you follow, when you share, when you let people know about the show. It makes a big impact. We are brought to you by Jewish Regional Media, which is my now a subsidiary or Next Gen Inc., a branch of the World Jewish Congress, who we have partnered with this year, and they're helping us a lot. Thanks to them, we were able to bring on some hired help, and we're growing, and we're very excited. We're happy that you're here with us, and enjoy the show. Besides all the Rebbe's teachings, the Rebbe's answers are still coming out. They're still being published. So many different responses to people in different challenging personal or communal situations. So one, we miss the Rebbe very much, and that's certainly... A big void. On the other hand, the Rebbe is certainly with us. We feel it, we live it, it's evident in Chabad. Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by Jewish Original Media and the On This Day in Jewish History Instagram account. We are a set of Jews, we happen to be tall, and we are ready to go. Welcome to the show. As always, our show is brought to you by Best Shot Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshotproduction.com and get a quote on your next video project today. On today's show, we have a very, very special guest. We have Rabbi Mendel Rubin, along with his wife, Brazy, co-direct the Shabbos House Ror Chabad Jewish Student Center in Albany, New York, 
and where he also teaches at the local Maimonides school. We got in touch with Rabbi Rubin, thanks to some amazing folks at Chabad.org. And the purpose of our conversation today is to celebrate what would have been the Rebbe's 120th birthday this year. Let's peel back before we get into it, just so we can get to know each other. Can you talk a little bit about your background personally and how you arrived at your current position and place in life? Basically, my father was born in Montreal, my mother was born in Brooklyn, and they went on the Rebbe Shlichus in 1974 to Albany, New York. I grew up here, but I went away to school a lot. I spent about 10 years studying in New York from 1984 to 1994, where I spent a lot of time by the Rebbe and with a great group of friends. Yeshiva life is very special. And then after marriage, I got married in 1996. I was actually looking at positions to teach in yeshivas because when I was a student teacher in Brunois, Brunois is a suburb of Paris, I ended up teaching by accident and it seemed to go well. And so that's something I looked into after marriage. I was going to teach Hasidus in uh, the yeshiva system in Chabad. And I did a lot of interviews and my wife basically nixed all of them. It turns out that she very much wanted to do a shlichus, the Rebbe's vision, and she wanted to do something that we would do together as a team. And so just around that time, the family who was running the Chabad house here at Albany, at the University at Albany, had left a year earlier. And the Chabad house was being run like by students or by visiting other Chabad families in the area. And that's how it was for about a year. And then the students came to speak to my father, who was the regional director of Chabad, and said, hey, we want a family back. And so my father said, would you explore this option? Razi jumped at it. My wife jumped at it. I was a little hesitant. I wasn't sure how I would relate to the college student environment. But we did come for a year. We became very, very close to the students with that first year. And we basically, um, here ever since, that was fall 97. And here we are, it's 2022. Still at it, new freshman class, living the life. We're very into this. Amazing. The end of last year, we did a book club on the show. We had some of our listeners actually join us. It was on the Rebbe by Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. And we learned a lot. I mean, I thought I knew about Chabad and the Rebbe until I read that. And through the book, we learned that Chabad actually doubled in size. Rabbi Shlomo Levin also shared this with us when he came on the show. It doubled in size since the Rebbe's passing. So can you speak a little bit about that and what the environment was like at the time? And what sets Chabad apart that has, in the last 25 years, only grown? And especially during COVID, it only grew. When shuls were closing, Chabad was opening. Can you speak a little bit about that and what sets Chabad apart in that sense? I don't know anything that really sets Chabad apart more than the Rebbe's teachings, the Rebbe's vision. The Rebbe really, really helped us see Judaism, life, our mission in life, our interaction with people in a totally different lens. And this is something that some people studied more and some people studied less, but either way, by osmosis or by study or by effort or just in the water, it really got absorbed in the Chabad vision, the Chabad life. Actually, when the Rebbe passed away in 1994, I was old enough to understand and young enough to be idealistic, but it was a very hard time and there was a lot of naysayers and our life revolved around the Rebbe's inspiration and it was very hard to imagine it different. The truth is, I think it's nothing short of a miracle. I see many young Chabad on campus shluchim who are going to campuses that are small Jewish populations and out of the way areas, and they have never seen the Rebbe at all. And they are so dynamic and creative and resourceful 
and incredibly dedicated, and their accomplishments are astounding. So it really is a miracle. It's a testament, I think, to the depth of connection that Hasidus has, both in Hasidim and the Rebbe. I think it's something that may have been underestimated or not fully appreciated, how deep Hasidus goes and how deep the Rebbe connection goes. This is something that is incredible how my children, my own children, their generation really has that sense of attachment and dedication and vision. It kind of transferred. It's really an incredible, incredible thing. On a spiritual sense, the Rebbe is with us and the Rebbe is pulling the strings and the Rebbe is driving us forward. And I think every Chabad Chassid feels that right in his bones. I could share with you a quick image Please. that was very meaningful to me during that time, during that transition period, when we were still figuring things out. And we drew on a lot of well of the Rebbe's writings following his father-in-law's passing in 1950. That became a source of tremendous inspiration and connection. So there's a nigun, a melody, called the Zalman Zlatopolsky song. Zalman Zlatopolsky nigun. The previous Rebbe in his writings describes the background of this song. And uh, I thought about this a lot. And he says that his father, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, he once visited him in Menton, France. It's the French Riviera where the Rebbe Rashab would go for a retreat. Our Rebbe actually never went anywhere for vacation. He was on 24-7. But the Rebbe Rashab did take time away and he spent some time in the French Riviera. And where he wrote some of his most magnificent Hasidus was written there, or at least envisioned there. And one time in 1911, the Friedrich Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, was visiting the Rebbe Rashab in this area. And Rebbe Rashab took him for a walk on the boardwalk, and they came to a clearing in the forest at the edge of the boardwalk, and there was a bench there. And the Rebbe Rashab, who was not terribly sentimental, he told his son that many years earlier, when my father passed away, I was here in Menton, you know, gathering my thoughts, collecting how I think. And I heard a melody in the woods. Mm -hmm. And I followed the boardwalk to the woods, to the clearing, and I saw a chassid there named Zalman Zlatopolsky. And he was sitting on this very bench, and he was singing a niggin, beautiful, haunting melody. And he said, when I saw him, I watched him. It looked to me like someone who had recently lost his Rebbe physically, but spiritually, the Rebbe was right in front of his eyes. To me, like whenever I see a bench like that with my children, I remember the story. It's an incredible vision. On one hand, we do miss the Rebbe very much. Situation in Ukraine is a great example. Shluchim had a lot of torment and dilemma, what to do, how to operate. But the Rebbe would always encourage or answer or specify. Besides all the Rebbe's teachings, the Rebbe's answers are still coming out. They're still being published. So many different responses to people in different challenging personal or communal situations. So one hand, we miss the Rebbe very much. And that's certainly a big void. And the other end, the Rebbe is certainly with us. We feel it, we live it, it's evident in Chabad. One question, because we want to continue, but just in case our listeners don't know, can you define uh, Hasidus and what Hasidus means? Ah, that's a good word. That's a good question. Hasidus is like an inner dimension of the Torah. Hasidus doesn't tell you the specific size of the shofar or the specifications of a lulav. That's more in the revealed or Talmudic or halachic dimensions of the Torah. To find deeper mystical spiritual teachings, I think it's very important to understand they're not way out Kabbalistical. They are deep mystical teachings that have a tremendously strong human component. And they're seen through the lens of human experience of Jewish life. They are deep, but they're incredibly enriching. I mean, the Rebbe's Torah was very unique because the Rebbe's Torah was interwoven Hasidus and Talmud and Rambam and Rashi and everything in a very interwoven kind of way and always with the life message, always with the relevance. Rebbe's Torah was never just a commentary on the Parsha and that's it. It always right. had a takeaway. It always had a lesson and it's always relevant. But the Rebbe's Torah did more than any other previous Chabad Rebbe, wove together the different components of Torah into this incredible tapestry. Obviously, I can't do justice to what Hasidus yeah. is in, in a soundbite here, but that, in a nutshell. 
you're listening and you want to learn more Hasidus, contact your local Chabad rabbi or go on, I think, Rabbi Fine every day on Instagram and Clubhouse. He's, he's doing Tanya lessons, so there's outlets to learn more. There's tremendous <laughs> opportunities online and in person. Yes, there are. Reb Yol of Blessed Memory is remembered as one of the foremost authorities of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings, was chiefly responsible for making sure his life's work was properly documented by Hasidism, a role he served for over four decades. But before we get into that, can you speak a little bit about uh, his upbringing in the Soviet Union and eventual arrival in New York? Well, I'm pretty young, so I can't uh, I can't go back that far. I know a little bit about his father. His father was a beautiful chassid, a very dedicated person. It's very interesting, actually, because his father comes across as more of the sentimental, warm, Hasidic storytelling type. And Rabbi Yoel was like an incredible genius, more of an intellectual. But it's interesting because even in Yoel's tremendous genius and uh, intellectual grasp of Hasidus, which was a little more calm and detached and dispassionate, I would say, nevertheless, he was also a tremendous repository of Hasidic melodies. And he was also a great Hasidic storyteller. And more so, paradox is a big word, I think, of Rabbi Yoel. One of the big paradoxes of Rabbi Yoel is that on one hand, he was incredible intellectual and genius. On the other hand, he exhibited tremendous bittel. Bittel is an untranslatable word. I don't know if it's self-transcendence or whatever you want to describe it as. He really had a very strong selfless aspect. He was like a student by the Rebbe. He was a perpetual student. He had the sense of wonder like a child. Uh, that was one incredible thing about Yoel, who knew so much Hasidus, who had heard the Rebbe for four decades. He was, I believe, present at every single Forbrengen, minus very limited number that he missed. And he memorized all of them. That's another interesting thing about Yoel. Memory. In other words, usually someone who has a photographic memory is not always the person who has the depth. But Rabiel had an incredible memory and incredible depth and the incredible intellectualism and incredible Bittel. He had the same sense of wonder at the Rebbe's teachings when he was an older man and he was, I'm, I don't remember him as a younger man, but I imagine this mm-hmm. is really an incredible blend of paradoxes. And not only that, but I think one of his primary ways that he understood the Rebbe was through the lens of paradox. I don't know about his Soviet upbringing. I knew that he grew up in a very deeply steeped Chabad family. His parents moved to Israel. He lived in Israel as a youngster. He was known to have a phenomenal memory, and they wanted him to come to, as a teen, to transcribe and to memorize the previous Rebbe's teachings. And so he went to New York on a ship, and by the time he arrived, the previous Rebbe had passed away. At that time, it wasn't yet known which of the previous Rebbe's son-in-laws would succeed him. Right. He went to speak to the Ramash. Ramash was Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, was the Rebbe. And he went to speak to him and he said, what should I do? I came here for the Rebbe and the Rebbe passed away. What should I do now? And the Ramash said, stay on. If the Rebbe sent for you, there'll probably be something for you to do. And so that's how it all began. So he was there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And he was there all the years of the Rebbe and always as a student listening up, ears perked. Right. We want to stay on this topic for a second because it's it's very interesting. And, you know, we're coming up on the one year on the art site of, of Rebbe Yol's passing just last year. There's said to be between eleven to 12,000 hours of oral history, 150 volumes, all by Rubiol. Do you think that it was just natural? Like it just came to him natural? Is this something that you could learn? It's something that he passed on? Because of course, you couldn't record on Shabbat. Everything had to be memorized. So can you speak a little bit about uh, his process and how that worked with the other Hasidim that worked with him in order to record and to memorize all these things? How exactly did that work? I was not part of that team, Mm. but I do remember I could describe some of the process. Please. Because some of this process was public. Basically, on Saturday nights, after the Rebbe's for bringing, there was something called Chazara. 
where they would review the Fabringen. And there were two main writers, and that was, in my day at least, that was Simon Jacobson and David Feldman. And Rabbi Yoel would sit like on the table, and they would sit on the two sides. And then there was a group of yeshiva boys and others gathered around, and he would start saying the Fabringen, they started repeating it. And basically, people would like jump in. Oh, maybe this was said over here, maybe this was said over there. And it was a little bit of piecing together the Fabringen, led by Rabbi Yoel, but with a lot of input from the other participants. And there'd be like some argument if it was like this or like that. And that'll be written down. The notes would be like stenographed by these two people. What I'm remembering is like mostly like the 80s. I mean, they did work with computers in the office, but like no one had a laptop, no one had a phone. So like this is all done on paper. I know that during the week when the Rebbe would give Fabrengans and Ma'am they would also translate it. Was that separate? Was that Jewish education? That was separate. That was yeah. in a room. I don't know if it's still there, actually, but instead of suddenly there was like a hole in the wall, literally, um, mm-hmm. between the shul part to an upstairs room where there were translators who would work during the weekday for Brangans mm-hmm. to translate first for radio and then for cable TV. And not only that, but you could sit in the Fabrengan and these FM transmitters, like let's say you were French. They knew this group in France coming. They would have a French translator and they would have these FM transmitters or if you spoke Hebrew and didn't speak Yiddish. Nobody's Fabrengans were in Yiddish, by the way. I had to learn Yiddish for that. It was a learning curve for me. Mm-hmm. coming from Albany, New York. I had to learn the Yiddish. Rabbi Yoel wasn't part of the translation, I don't think. So Rabbi Yoel had three rules. Memorizing the Rebbe's words, and then it was turning the Rebbe's oral words into a written publication. It's not the same style exactly. I actually suffer from this. I tend to write the way I speak, but uh, any good writer will tell you that's not the way to do it. It's a different language, really. The spoken word and the written word. And so retranscribing the Rebbe's words into, especially a lot of these things were scholarly writings, had to be rewritten for the written format. But there was another aspect to Yale besides that. So I want to say, so it was the memorization and the transcription. And then it was the turning this into a written document. And by the way, some of those written documents were just written and stayed that way, just transcribed. There's a whole set. It's still being published. Of all the Fabringans going back to 1950, I think now they're in the middle of the 70s. They're retypesetting it and rewriting it. But that's like raw Fabringan, raw footage. And then there are a lot of sikhot that were written for publication that have like one thought of the Fabrengen articulated and expressed. And that is a separate set called Lekutli Sichot, which was edited by the Rebbe. So um, Yoel also worked a lot back and forth with the Rebbe on the edit. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't only him, it was a team actually, but he was very involved in that. In addition to that, he was also a yeah. teacher. And right. I think this is where I appreciated Yoel the most. And where I think that we can learn the most from him. Memory is a thing, either you have it or you don't. I don't know. Maybe there are tools for that. You know, like one of our main roles here at campus is to remember people's names. It's like a, one of our biggest tricks in the in the book is to remember people's names. We do have tricks for that. I don't think I have a specialty in that. It's something we realize the importance of and we pay close attention to. And we have all kinds of methods and tricks, how we can learn some people come in here once and we don't see them again for a year. We have to remember people's names. It's a very important piece of what we do. So there are tricks for that. I don't think memory is unattainable. So the transcription and the memory is not something I personally learned from him. But the way he understood Hasidus, the way he understood the Rebbe's teachings, he had like an art, I think, of distilling it. And I know that he taught this. My uncle was one of the boys, yeshiva students, that he enlisted to help him remember the Fabrengans back in the 60s and early 70s. And he taught them this art of distillation, of like getting to the key point of understanding the Rebbe's underlying message. Besides all this information, what's going on here? And I think that's something I learned a lot from Rebbe He really distilled a lot of Hasidus into, especially into these paradoxes, these synthesized paradoxes that formed a lot of how we understood the Rebbe. And it's really relevant everything I 
do, and it's something I think about a lot. I think that teaching component of his was another exceptional part, and that, that's where you see his depth, not just memorization or transcription, but it's also like his keen, deep understanding of the underlying conceptual issues here and what's really at stake, what's going on under the hood. So the Rebbe is rightfully viewed as a deeply religious and spiritual person, but can you speak to the Rebbe as a Renaissance man, someone who inhaled culture of all times and interacted and lived amongst the secular world, both in Europe and in Brooklyn? Yes, yeah, so you can get that certainly from the book Rebbe, right. a lot more on the history. The Rebbe definitely was incredibly human. I want to say much more than you would expect, I think, of a religious, pious person. Sense of humor came through it for Bringens. The Rebbe's sense of empathy came through through his answers to people, through his many volumes of the Kutasichas, of understanding people's issues. I mean, never letting people get off the hook, by the way. The Rebbe was very demanding. But a lot of empathy and understanding. And in the past 25 years, one of the beautiful things that I did not have growing up by the Rebbe was that there's an organization called GEM, Jewish Educational Media, that produces a lot of the Rebbe's talks and things like that from earlier years. But one of the beautiful things they did was something called My Encounter. They interviewed more than a thousand people and they're trying to interview more. And I only regret they started too late. But really mm. so many people they interviewed about their private and personal interactions with the Rebbe, whether it was communally or personally, wow. and they share them. We get the subscription. We get it every Saturday night. We watch it with our families, the students. There's a lot of these interviews and a lot of them are online. And you see that the Rebbe's incredible humanity. Let me share this because this was something Rebbe Yoel was very into. I actually learned it first from a different teacher of mine who passed away during Corona. His yeah. name was Rapinia Korf. He was into this. Rapinia just said it. Rabiel articulated it. Rabiel showed it in the Rebbe's teachings much more than Rapinia did. But I first learned it from Rapinia. Rapinia drilled it into me. The Chabad Chassidus is very much into being invelt and oismanvelt at the same time. To be immersed in the world and beyond the world. Uh, to be worldly and spiritual, spiritual and physical. That fusion is incredibly important to the Rebbe and to Chassidus. And Rapinia showed us that this was the Rebbe's constant theme, and Rebuel really, really explained it. And I think you see that in the lives of Shluchim. We try to be relevant, we try to speak the language, we try to relate, we try to connect, we try to be fun. At the same time, we have a spiritual mission, a spiritual uplift. So, to me, the Rebbe did relate to a lot of different kinds of people, each in their own way. There was incredibly understanding and human. Actually, I saw it more in these videos after the Rebbe's passing than during the Rebbe's lifetime, because it's just an insight into the Rebbe and the humanness is incredibly uplifting to me. Obviously, when people came to him and they had a certain field of interest. It was an Israeli army general or some kind of engineer or some kind of public school teacher. The Rebbe related to them, politician, in their language. The Rebbe engaged them in their way. And the Rebbe was very encouraging that they should find their godly mission and purpose in that way. The Rebbe was not, let's study Torah all day and forget about the world. It was very much engaged in the world. I'm not the Chabad historian. I can't really speak to the <laughs> Rebbe's time in Berlin or in France. I That's consider myself young, you know. To me, the Rebbe that I knew was most in the 80s and early 90s. But definitely, to me, that is expressed. The Renaissance man of the Rebbe is most expressed in how he related to people and how we understood people and how we engaged with people and how we empowered people. There's a famous line that either Jonathan Sachs said or someone else said that some leaders want followers. The Rebbe wanted to empower leaders. We've all felt that. I was always intrigued, actually, even during the Rebbe's lifetime, how the Rebbe related to different people in different ways. Even among the Rebbe Shluchim, even among Chabad, you know, there's some people more action-oriented, some people more scholarly, some people are more into financial areas, some people are more into spiritual areas. The Rebbe related to each person and empowered each person in their way. They saw the Rebbe through their lens. 
And that's because the Rebbe saw them through their lens. Interesting about Rebbe that always intrigued me. Yeah. So Yoel, by the way, was not a shliach. And he was not engaged in the world. I can't even imagine him really engaging in a college campus <laughs> or somewhere. He was a very... Remember all their names, for sure. <laughs> he was a, a cupman. She was a, an intellectual. He was lost in Hasidus. He was a man of the code. You know, Hasidus is code. Shlichus okay. is a user interface. Okay, you know? I like that. But here's one of the things something interesting. One of the main teachings of Rebbe that I always remember him saying, and it always intrigued me because I know who he was, that he would say, like, you know, there's an upper and a lower, there's a spiritual and a physical. And it's very important in the language of Hasidus and the teachings of the Rebbe that the spiritual engaged with the physical, not only on the spiritual terms, but on the physical terms, mitzad in yanayhu, he used to say that, on the physical terms, on its own terms, in its own language. And it always intrigued me because I was wondering how could Rebbe appreciate that mitzad in yanayhu, I'm a Chabad campus, I deal with students. I know what it means to come from their lens, from their side. But Rebiel used to kachsich in this. He would be very animated about this. That you have to see it in Sadinyanehu on the level of the recipient. From right. the level of the recipient. Anyways, I, I feel that the Rebbe was very much that way. And that's an incredible a sense of humanity. I mean, understanding of the times. Like, the Rebbe was a very spiritual person, but he understood the times like no other. The Rebbe really understood American youth. The Rebbe understood the needs of the Jewish people. The Rebbe was very, very engaged. I just want to say this about shlichas, about Chabad growing. My father was explaining to me that when the Rebbe in the 1960s was speaking about making a yeshiva for Balei Tshuva, they thought that it meant like a spiritual level. Like in the Talmud, it talks about this level, that level. They had no conception in the early 60s that there'd be a movement of people coming back to explore their Jewish roots. It was unheard of. They were children of Holocaust survivors. They were just trying to tread water. They had no idea that there'd be a movement back. And so many things, like even the concept of shlichus, you hear the Fabrengans from the 50s and 60s, very speaking about the importance of going out into the world and engaging people where they are and serving Jews, no matter how few, no matter how many, no matter how inconvenient. The Rebbe was driving this point home, but it took years and years. It took really till the 80s that it became a mass movement in Chabad. It took a long time of teaching and inspiring and showing and demonstrating and Shluchim showing that it could be successful, and answering and encouraging, responding. This took years. Never didn't snap his fingers. Never had to deal with people. And by the way, another interesting angle of this, a lot of Shluchim wrote to the Rebbe their struggles, their challenges, their issues, what they're dealing with. And the Rebbe's answers to them are so beautiful. Or so Like for me today, they're very heartwarming. They're incredible. The Rebbe really related. The Rebbe definitely related to each person in their way. The Rebbe was ahead of his times in many ways. And the Rebbe really gave us a gift, many gifts, but really the way to see world and see life and see Judaism, the gifts are not only spiritual gifts. There's a lot of in-depth understanding of human nature and people, what it means to be principled in your own life and have certain personal standards and at the same time be accepting and loving and appreciative and embracing of others. There's a lot of very unique, beautiful gifts that we take for granted in Chabad. There's a lot of humanity in Chabad. Right. I mean, even the whole principle that Rebbe set up, and this is really part of the magic of Chabad, is that it's not a top-heavy organization. Chabad is franchised, and it's franchised not like McDonald's. Every Chabad house is different. Every Chabad house has its own style, its own individualism. Even in campus Chabad, there's tremendous diversity and tremendous difference of style. A lot of it's tailored to the local community, the needs of the students. This is an incredibly interesting model. Totally. I think that's one of the things that stood out to me when reading the biography of the Rebbe, and how, like you said, people didn't come to him only for spiritual things. 
things. People came to him for personal things, very personal things. I think that's a quality of a Rebbe. But I wanted to come back to a point where you touched on about GEM, Jewish educational media. I always kind of noticed it, and I already noticed it with the metaverse, that Chabad is always on top of the new mass communication medium as a means of sharing Torah. Has this always been the case? Like even before mass communication, has Chabad always committed to tapping into these mass communications as opposed to like other Hasidic movements or even other Orthodox movements that kind of stay away from new technology? I already saw that Chabad is trying to open a Chabad house in the metaverse. I think that's amazing. I love it. I see Chabad on Clubhouse. I see Chabad on Instagram. I see Chabad on Twitter. I see Chabad rabbis with social media accounts, but you don't see different Hasidic sects online. Very little. It's rare. Can you speak a little bit about that? Has that always been the case even before mass media? So um, I could just share two early stories of this, but they're before my time. There was a radio station in New York called WEVD, the station that speaks your language. I think it was like for ethnic groups. It was a Yiddish part of the program. It was an opportunity to teach Torah on WEVD. Rebbe embraced it. Rabbi Yossel Weinberg did a Tanya share on WEVD. This is like in the 60s. The Rebbe had a whole sikhan that's published about the beauty of using radio for Judaism. And the Rebbe says, not only is it a method for reaching more people that wouldn't come to shul, the Rebbe mm -hmm. says that it actually puts Judaism in the radio waves. Like there was very into that, like moving in a spiritual realm in a physical wavelength. Right. So that sicha is an example where the Rebbe very much embraces technology. Obviously, Chabad dance is a fine line. We do embrace technology, but like we wouldn't stream on Shabbat. So we do right. follow halacha. The Rebbe was very into using whatever means. Another thing is, I think now it's actually public, but there's a senator from New Jersey named Frank Lautenberg. And before he was senator, he was a wealthy person and he was the head of the UJA or whatever it was called at the time. And in 1972, he went to see the Rebbe and there's a recording of that Yechidus. And when I was a yeshiva boy, that was like traveling around the cassette tape, like contraband. I loved listening to it because I was speaking English the whole time. It was very interesting. One of the things that they discuss is he was invested in computers and computers then were like mainframe computers. They were like massive. No one even thought of a personal computer it was unheard of. And um, he was asking the Rebbe like that he is invested in this, but he's unsure of the direction. And the Rebbe says, and it's a funny word to use now, but there says we live now in the jet age and it only will accelerate faster and faster. The Rebbe was very encouraging of it. So I read from the Rebbe about the time on the radio and I heard this tape from the Rebbe to this Frank Lautenberg. Like whenever Shluchim had an innovative idea, the Rebbe jumped on it. There was very encouraging of creativity. So like whatever medium we can use to connect Jews to Judaism, we're game. But obviously it has to be within the parameters of halacha and decency. The Rebbe had like a system of checks and balances. Sometimes if someone crossed the line, the Rebbe would note that to him. You know, it was very encouraging and empowering, but also it was like a whole system of checks and balances of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So we are still dancing that line, you know, but we're all on social media. Actually, like personally, I love Twitter. Not that it's helpful for my shlichus because I find most students are not on Twitter, but I love Twitter. I love the challenge of the constriction. I love playing with words. I find a lot of interesting people on Twitter. Facebook used to be our go-to thing. It still is, but Instagram is more where students are at. But yes, we are on social media and that's our primary way actually of reaching students, even though now it's going back to text. What is your social media so people can follow you? We're called Shabbos House. Just at Chavez's, both on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram. I think we even have a Snapchat, but I don't think we use it much. Nice following. Social media for us has been a tremendous tool. It really is a way to engage and connect both in a broad way and also in a personal way. We're not averse to it. But again, even on social media, we have to also realize that we represent the Rebbe, we represent right. Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush still... Hashem. We're not just a personal anonymous user. We are right. something to think about. Well, you just got three more followers because we have three accounts. That's very my sweet. personal and the podcast, the history blog. Okay, Isaac. So 
You've penned several essays on Chabad.org, which can be described as an eclectic mix of scholarship and spirituality. These essays seem to intertwine both professional knowledge and personal experience. Is this intentional or is it ingrained in your writing process? That's very kind of you. I did write a little bit for Chabad.org. It so happens to be that most of my Chabad.org articles are centered around the melody. It's not really what I'm about usually. It's hard for me to say, but just something Chabad.org was interested in. And so I did write some articles in that vein. I'm very touched, Isaac, that you picked up on that. It's something I think I got from the Rebbe, but also from my father. I got it from other places that the scholarship and personal life are inseparable, especially in Hasidic teachings. You're not learning something abstract or irrelevant. Everything you learn, there has to be relevance. My father was once interviewed by a reporter. The reporter asked, like, what's the most important ideas in education? It was something at the Capitol. My father said one word, relevance. Mm -hmm. The most important word in education is relevance. And I really feel that. I feel that personal relevance is built into the DNA of Chabad because Chachma Bina Das, the Das part of that equation is personal relevance, connection. The Rebbe never left an idea hanging. It was never just a concept. It was always, always, always about relevance, personal life, personal personal connection, how you're going to live it. And I feel that. All my Dvar Torahs are online after Shabbat. We call them Mendel's messages. You'll see that blend. I'm, I'm very touched that you picked up on that. But yes, it's a cornerstone. It's very important to me to see everything in life. That's the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, by the way. And by the way, that goes back to Mayor's question before. You know, the, the Baal Shem Tov taught that everything you see in life can be a lesson in serving God. And I feel that technology falls right into that bucket. And this really goes back, I don't want to get too philosophical, but it goes back to the Tzimtzum argument. Big Tzimtzum argument, heart and core of a lot of Jewish philosophy, Chabad believes that the tzimtzum lo kipshuto, which means that the tzimtzum is not absolute, which means godliness is very much present in our world, in all of its facets, in our journey, our explorations to find godliness in life, in technology, in human experience. There had to be a tzimtzum. Everybody agrees to that. Tzimtzum means either a concealment or a contraction. Some Jewish groups believe there's a contraction, which means that God is not present in the physical world. It's only mm -hmm. present in Torah or mitzvah. But Chabad believes, among others who believe the same, that the tzimtzum lokipshuta, which means it's not a contraction, but a concealment. God is present. He can be found in life, obviously through the lens and guide of Torah, but it's found within human experience. You could be a shoemaker and serve God in a very spiritual way, you know, in the shoes. We have a lot of shoemakers in the audience, so you spoke directly to them. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, Rabbi, if you could pick three people from all of Jewish history, back to Abraham, who would you want to have Shabbat dinner with? Three people. That's a really good question. Moses would be an obvious one, maybe. Okay. I'd like to see his take. I would love to meet the Baal Shem Tov. I'd love to meet Rashi. Right now, one of my challenges, someone challenged me actually on Twitter. Chabad studies Rambam every day. There's two study modes. One is three chapters a day. And one is one chapter a day. And some of our alumni have actually jumped onto the one chapter. So I decided to study it with them. And then someone else on Twitter, a colleague from England, challenged me. And I actually have written a Rambam tweet every single day during the study cycle. I mean, obviously not on Shabbat. And okay. it's been hard to keep up. And some of the Rambam is pretty hard to find relevance or Twitter relevance, public relevance. But I've been at it. And it's something I've kept up. It's a nice challenge. It makes me learn the Rambam a little better. So I don't know if I would put the Rambam on the list always, but right now I'm actually very immersed in that. And maybe I'll put the Rambam on as well. Moshemtov's teachings, by the way, are simple and profound and change everything. They're a major paradigm shift. Everything shifts at the Moshemtov. And the Rebbe took that to a whole new level, but it really started at the Moshemtov. That Rizal is also a great guy. And his teachings reverberate. His teachings are everything. The whole Jewish philosophy today is all based on how much you accept or agree with that Rizal. Did the Rebbe ever dig in 
into Breslov teachings? I don't know if the Rebbe went into it a lot. One of the big teachings of Breslov is how to deal with sadness, and the Rebbe's approach was certainly a different take. They both have a deep understanding of the human condition of how mental health and depression and anxiety could be debilitating to a person. I think the approaches are different, and the Rebbe had a very different approach. So I don't think it's an argument, but I, I think it's different. The Baal Shem Tov, he taught, and correct me if I'm wrong, through stories. Correct? Correct, yes. Um, and I know that Rav Nachman also, very seemingly simple stories with immensely deep meaning. So Correct, I think yes, yes, yes. Cross, By the way, the Rebbe's father-in-law also taught through stories. One of my favorite books to read as a kid was the Rebbe's father-in-law, Sichos, Rabbi Yosef He was very heavy on stories. The Rebbe was not. The Rebbe was not heavy on stories, actually. But he did share stories now and then for Brangham, but it was never really a major focus. It was a different style. So, and this has been mentioned and really nicely articulated by you, but the Rebbe dedicated his life to positive action and thinking. Given the failures of Holocaust education, both in the United States and globally, but for now in the United States, A, what would he want Chabad to do to correct current trends? And B, what do you think his message would be to the next generation of future Holocaust educators? As survivors die and the dynamic changes. Actually, in the book, the Rebbe by Talishkin, he highlights this in a way that I didn't realize before. There's a few things in the book. I mean, there's a lot of things in that book, but there's a few things in that book that really made me rethink the things I didn't realize that he picked up on. Talishkin points out that for a post-Holocaust Jewish leader, the Rebbe was not heavy on Holocaust commemoration or education. Not that he was against it, but it was not a primary focus. There was much more on the positive side, Jewish identity, more on the joy than the oi, more on the future than the past. The Rebbe had a different emphasis. The most memorable thing that the Rebbe said about the Holocaust in my time was in 1990. There was a rabbi in Israel who spoke disparagingly of non-religious Jews, Jews who didn't keep kosher or whatever, and he said that they will cause a second Holocaust. They don't repent. This was the language. And I actually never seen the Rebbe so upset. I'm only remembering the 80s and early 90s. It was interesting because when I heard the Fabrengen, we didn't know the background. We just heard the Rebbe very upset. And the Rebbe spoke so beautifully that it was just a totally different approach. In fact, that for bringing one of the most seared into my memory, just a very, very different approach. Being here 25 years is actually pretty cool because mm-hmm. you see like generational shifts and in college, the generations are compressed. So we really can see history unfolding. And there's actually a lot of interesting differences between when we first came in. And one of the interesting differences I would say is that it used to be that the Holocaust was like a primary Jewish identifier. Mm-hmm. And I think today Israel has edged into that space. Not everybody's on the same wavelength about that, but I think people associate more Jewish identity with Israel than they do with the Holocaust. That's just my corner observation. I think it's very important people to be aware of, and I think it's important Jews and non-Jews, everybody should have an understanding what happens when words go wrong. It's not only murdering people, it starts earlier, and a lot of this awareness is very important, but I can't see that the Rebbe would say that we should emphasize more what happened. I don't see that in the Rebbe's style at all. This emphasizes your point about him being forward-thinking, and to what you just said, that it's sad that your identifier as a Jew is one of the worst tragedies in our history. It really shouldn't be that way, and the problem is that we have nowadays is that there was so much emphasis from the American Jewish community and this comes from an author her name is Dara Horn she wrote a book called People Love Dead Jews I don't know if you came across this yes yes I just heard her on a different podcast talk about how there was such an emphasis on Holocaust education that now the non-Jewish world sees that as a way to sort of check off a box and not actually educate about the Holocaust but just say I remember but like anti-Semitism is still on the rise and Holocaust denial is on the rise and all these things are on the rise and it's like what happened we spent so much time and so much 
much money on Holocaust education and everything is going backwards. So I think the Rebbe saw that from where I'm sitting. It seems like he was forward thinking in the sense where it's not sustainable to put so much emphasis on such a tragedy. It's more sustainable to focus on the joy and not the, oh, yeah, I really like that. I think we might put that on one of the promotions for the podcast. And because at the end of the day, I feel like people connect more with sometimes even the uplifting stories in the Holocaust than the terrible stories in the Holocaust. When you talk about the Bielski brothers and when you talk about spiritual resistance, uh, there was a rabbi who was in the Warsaw Ghetto. He fought in the uprising. He did everything he could in the Warsaw Ghetto to keep a spiritual resistance. I think people connect more with these happy stories because every day was a resistance for a Jew that was living through that. We need to put more emphasis on the resistance aspect, not just the violent resistance, but the spiritual resistance. Even the people who survived, they resisted by, by living. I think that angle is more sustainable to teach about the Holocaust. This is obviously a larger conversation and I don't want to take away from the main icker of this episode, but this is something that we have a lot of conversations over online and I'm sure you see it on Twitter and on our podcast episodes. So we want to bring it up. I just want to say, I'm not dismissing the need for Holocaust education. I do yeah. know when students go to Poland, they come back very inspired. I'm not dismissing not the role me. that that plays, but I think it was the overemphasis to the detriment of other things, I think was something that I was very, very concerned about. It's in that book. It's in the book by Flushkin. It's pretty documented there. But um, I do think it has a role to play. I once wrote a class here. We, we have classes here for the students. I borrowed the title from Barack Obama's book. It was called The Audacity of Hope. We discussed how people built their lives after the Holocaust, built families, businesses, communities. If you think about it, some go through such traumatic experience. It's really a testament. I like what you said about the resistance after the war, just living your life and raising children. And my grandfather lost his whole family, except for his brother. You know, when I was younger, he was a very joyful person, very positive person. I can't even imagine what he was holding inside. But the fact that he built family and he educated his children and he had a positive experience impacting a lot of people, it's really an incredible thing. I think that's something that should be taught more. I think it's a very important piece. Absolutely. In the coming weeks, as we commemorate the very day of what would be the Rebbe's 120th birthday, what message do you have for the world on the significance of this year? So this is a two-part question, but I'll let you go at the first part now. The Rebbe used to celebrate milestones. The Rebbe was very into celebrating milestones and made a fuss out of them. He uh, did find significance in milestone years and did special things for them. So certainly, whatever the Rebbe did, we live on, we continue, we very much know this would be something the Rebbe would be excited about. And so certainly 120 years, you know, it's a Jewish wish. It's a beautiful milestone. So I agree that there's something special about it. I know a lot of people are trying to expand Chabad and grow institutions and they're trying to do all kinds of new projects. And there's a lot of growth in that area and a lot of emphasis and yeshiva students are studying a lot of the Rebbe's teachings and all this. But to me, it's just keep on trucking. Every day we get to do the Rebbe's work. You know, I want to say something interesting. I don't know if this is really true, but this is how I feel. I feel closest to the Rebbe in the work that I do. In other words, yes, I go to the OHEL and we dive in there and I feel very uplifted and we feel very connected. Even our alumni and students, many people feel very connected there. It's really amazing, uplifting of a place it is. And we feel that's something our children feel as well. But really, I feel closest to the Rebbe when I'm sitting here with college students. We're celebrating Shabbos. We're learning. We're putting out to fill in. We're doing mitzvahs. This is where the Rebbe's at. And that's something the Rebbe showed and demonstrated a lot in his lifetime. It's all about the mission. It's all about living the life, living the dream living the Rebbe's dream. So yes, it's a milestone year and I'm sure there'll be special ceremonies and teachings and they'll print special publications and they're trying to grow the institutions. There's a lot of energy in it. And that's what the Rebbe would want. The Rebbe would never want a milestone just to commemorate a date and check it off on the calendar. The Rebbe was always, so what are we going to do with this? How is mm-hmm. this going to lead to added activity? One of his birthdays, he said, you have to open up one more of Chabad houses than my birthday in my year or something. Yeah, so actually, the, when the Rebbe turned 70, 
the Rebbe asked to open up, this just shows how Chabad has grown, 71 institutions. Today, that's like a drop in the bucket. But then, as I said earlier, the Rebbe was really pushing. It took time for Chabad to catch on to the Rebbe's vision. It really did take time. You know, there's stories when the Rebbe sent Shluchim to places like, I don't know, Texas, not Zimbabwe or some Asian country. The parents, when Holocaust survivors said, Rebbe, we lived our whole life to raise these children. Why should you send them far away? And the Rebbe said, this will be the best thing for them. And it's true. The Shlichus life is really the greatest gift. And there's so many Chabad couples that are dying for this gift. It's hard to open the places, but they are. We ask this to all of our esteemed guests. If you had a billboard where billions, you know, the whole world could see the message printed on this billboard, what would it say and why? Wow, that's a heavy question. I would have to think about that. I'd have to tweet a whole bunch of tweets to get it narrowed down <laughs> to something. A lot of the Rebbe's key messages in the last few years was about Mashiach, about doing one mitzvah, about changing the world, making the world better, and the individual and collective empowerment of making that happen. And so I don't have yet a billboard that I would design, but it would be some kind of amalgamation of that that we can transform the world with good deeds, each person, a positive outlook, not a pessimistic outlook, but a positive outlook that we can each do our part, each mitzvah, something like that. The Rebbe's message was both individual and communal. The Rebbe spoke about that a lot. By the way, every letter that the Rebbe wrote, communal letter, had a beautiful salutation. It was written, El B'nai Benot Yisrael, the sons and daughters of Israel, that was very careful to always include the masculine and the feminine, B'nai Benot Yisrael, B'chol Makom Shehem, wherever they find themselves. And I love that letter. First of all, who writes a letter to all the Jewish people? And I love the letter B'chol Makom Shehem because it means wherever you find yourself, emotionally, spiritually, physically, every yeah. space in life. The Rebbe usually never said the word community. The Rebbe used to say, Kol Echad V'achas Misrael, each and every Jew. Uh, to me, the each and every is the communal and the individual. The Rebbe felt the power of both. And I think that's an important message. I used to think that the Rebbe has a Waldo idea, which is you're never lost in the crowd. And the Rebbe's a whole sicha on this, actually. Beautiful sicha, very autobiographical sicha. Yeah, so individual and communal, the power of action, power of positivity, trying to make a better world. The world isn't going down the drain, but we're actually growing in a positive direction. Isaac, I don't have a good answer, but something distilled from those lines, I think it would be something like that. That was powerful and meaningful. At the very least, we gave you an idea for a tweet thread. I love the idea of a tweet that you could work on distilling an idea. I actually liked the uh, 140 limitation. I got used to the 280, but I don't want them to grow further. I really feel the limitation helps you formulate an idea better. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. This is great. You guys are a lot of fun. Yes, yes. We'll have to follow you and find good things. Yes. I want to make something clear. I don't represent Chabad. I just spoke to you naturally, personally. Of course. No, but you do a great job of representing yourself and we welcome the opportunity of having you on in the future. And uh, we'll be in touch. Bye.